0: So Romans chapter 11, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they could not see and ears so they could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arise "'arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. "'For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, "'what would their acceptance be but life from the dead? "'If the part of the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, "'then the whole batch is holy. "'If the root is holy, so are the branches. "'If some of the branches have been broken off "'and you, though a wild olive shoot, "'have been grafted in among the others,' and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you can continue in his kindness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all... If you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.
1: Let's um, bow in prayer, shall we? Father, thank you so much for your word. And we just do pray now that you'd... um, by your spirit be quietening our minds and our hearts and uh, helping us to uh, understand and consider uh, your word uh, that we would be people who live in accordance with the gospel of Jesus and we pray these things in his name, Amen. I have a friend who grew up in a uh, deeply uh, Christian family, Uh, his mum and dad uh, were uh, the people who really loved the Lord Jesus, and loved the Gospel. And uh, from the very uh, beginning of his life, they taught him uh, about uh, God, and read the Bible to him, uh, taught him about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he had great advantages in life in that respect. Uh, you might say that God's Word uh, just ran through his veins. Uh, and he's intelligent as well. Pretty smart guy, uh, now lectures at a university uh, in science. And by his early 20s, I I know that he had read the Bible through from front to back at least three or four times, and he kind of retained the knowledge as well. So he he knew God's Word, but he didn't know God, and that was the problem. And so instead of... um, Using that knowledge for good, he utilised his formidable uh, knowledge of the Bible and his Christian heritage uh, as a weapon against Christianity. And he became a somewhat of a problem to the Christians who um, met up with him and uh, uh, with whom he wanted to uh, seek to dismantle uh, their faith. And you can see why it would be easy for Christians to think a little bit poorly of him, because not all of us have got the same blessings in in life. Not all of us have grown up in godly Christian families with mums and dads who taught us the Word of God from year dot. Uh, but he had—he is someone who'd received the blessings of God. He'd had a loving Christian family, a deep knowledge of. Uh, God's word, a good processor to actually think it through and retain the knowledge of it. And yet he had a heart which was just so cold towards God. Now imagine how Gentile Christians in the early church may have felt towards Jewish people who rejected God and even persecuted them as Gentile Christians. I think it's hard for us to imagine actually uh, because not many of us um, have very many Jewish friends Uh, that's my guess anyway. Um, If we were a church in the uh, harbourside eastern suburbs of Sydney that might be quite different for us but uh, for a lot of us we don't actually have much connection with Jewish people Uh, We know a little bit about them, we know that they are very religious, and we know that mostly that they don't believe in Jesus. In fact, I've actually met Christians who have difficulty understanding that a person can be a Jew and a Christian. Um, They think you're either a Jew or you're a Christian, but what's this Jewish Christian thing that's difficult for them to grasp hold of? And it's easier for, for us to kind of think a little bit poorly of them, because we believe in their Messiah, but they don't. You see the point? And, and it, that's an attitude which found a degree of traction in the first century as the Gospel spread throughout the world, and as many non-Jews, that is Gentiles, came to believe in the Jewish Messiah whereas most of the Jews didn't. And so we can imagine some Gentile Christians uh, even feeling a little bit elitist, even feeling a bit smug about that because, hey, we've accepted the Gospel but most of them who had the background, they haven't. And some might have even thought that um, God had rejected Israel, that uh, they were no longer a part of his plan. So in this section of Romans that we've been dealing with, um, Paul wants to correct that thinking. And we see it really specifically here in chapter 11, which you might want to have open in front of you. And he starts off correcting that thinking by giving a couple of examples which show that God has not rejected his people. And uh, in in verse 1, exhibit number 1, is Paul himself... He is the most obvious illustration of the fact that God has not rejected Israel. He says, "Hey, what about me? I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. How do you, you know, if God has rejected Israel, how do you explain me?" <laughs> Fair comment. But secondly, uh, Paul goes on to say, "You remember the the, the prophet Elijah uh, in, in the book of One Kings. Remember." Israel as a nation had broken up into two separate kingdoms, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and uh, in one king's the northern kingdom was ruled by King Ahab and his uh, lovely wife Jezebel, Uh, and they had introduced Baal worship, and it seemed like the entire nation of Israel, the whole kingdom, had turned away from God and were bowing the knee to Baal, At least that's what Elijah had thought. Uh, He thought that he was the only godly person left in the whole of the kingdom of Israel. But have a look at what God said to him, and Paul quotes it in verse 4. Because God said, God answered him saying, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That is, within the physical kingdom of Israel, there is a... There is a remnant. There, there, is a, there are descendants of Abraham who are descendants of Abraham not because they share, not just because they share his genes, but because they they share his faith, his trust in God. Now it was the same deal in Paul's day. Unlike Elijah, Paul didn't think that he was the only one left. Uh, he knew that there was this remnant whom God had graciously chosen to trust in him and to be his people. It's difficult for us to grasp the concept that God chooses some for life uh, whilst he hardens the hearts of others, uh, as we see here in this passage. Um, For example, in verse verse 7, Paul says, What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear, to this very day. There he's quoting from Isaiah. And now he quotes from uh, David in the Psalms, saying, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Now, notice here that these are not just Paul's thoughts. Uh, He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah. He's quoting from the Psalms. Uh, And from Isaiah, he's quoting where Isaiah talks about God making his people Israel blind and deaf so that they actually wouldn't see, they wouldn't hear him. Uh, and from Psalm 69, uh, David prays for judgment upon those uh, who are actually enemies of God. I like the idea of the table becoming a snare and a trap. Did you, you see, notice that? Um, commentators think that could mean different things. So, some say it's an allusion to where in a Middle Eastern context you lay out a, a cloth on the ground and uh, you sit on the cloth and you eat the, uh, the meal, but uh, someone stands up and as they're walking away, their foot gets tangled in the cloth and they trip over. Uh, that's one idea. Some say it might be an allusion to someone actually being poisoned through the food. But it's, uh, it's grim... Uh, no matter what it uh, means. And this is a picture of Israel and their rejection of the Gospel. Now, let's be clear on this. God does not cause or He doesn't force anyone to sin. Uh, We choose to reject God because our hearts are inclined uh, to do that. Uh, Metaphors are never adequate, but... um, It's like we've poured the concrete of our hearts, and for some God softens our hearts, whereas for others he allows them to harden. God has graciously chosen to soften some Jewish hearts, but has hardened the hearts of many others. Now, why would God do this? In verses 11 through to 16, God hardened the hearts of Israel for a purpose, and that is so that the gospel would be propelled to the Gentiles. And for example, in Acts chapter 8, remember the first Christian martyr, his name was Stephen. And after Stephen was stoned, in Acts chapter 8, we're told that a great persecution broke out, that uh, uh, the Jewish Christians, because all the Christians were Jewish, uh, were persecuted by the non-Christian Jews. And because of that, the the persecution was so fierce that they were actually forced into a position where they had to flee. They had to flee for their lives. They left Jerusalem. And uh, they went into uh, Judea and Samaria. And as they left, what is it that they take with them? They take with them... The Gospel of Jesus. So they're actually propelled out of Jerusalem into other places. Now, during Paul's missionary journeys, when he arrived in a town, where was the first place he went to to preach? He'd always go first to the synagogue, because as he says early on in Romans, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Um, Why don't you just keep your bulletins in Romans 11... And just come with me to Acts chapter 13 for a moment. Um, So in in Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 42, here Paul uh, and Barnabas have preached the gospel in um, Pisidian Antioch. And have a look at um, what happens in verse 42 of chapter 13. It says, As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue... The people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Always good to get an invitation to come back, isn't it, to preach? It means they liked what they heard. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation. To the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. How about that, eh? It's a great story. You see what happened? The gospel is preached first to the Jews, and when that happens, the elect, that is the remnant of of the Jews, they believe, whereas others become angry. And hostile and what does that hardness of heart cause Paul to do it causes him to turn to the Gentiles and to, to speak to the Gentiles to declare to the Gentiles the promises of God in Jesus so that in verse 48 all those from amongst the Gentiles who were appointed by God To believe, believed. And see what's happened? A church is born. The elect of the Jews, the elect from the Gentiles, now one together in Christ. Now, the same thing happens multiple times throughout the book of Acts. For example, in Acts 18, in Thessalonica, and right at the end of Acts, in Acts 28, in Rome itself, uh, where Paul... uh, having preached to the Jews who uh, rejected the message, actually quotes the same passages from Isaiah as he quotes here in Romans 11. But you see, the stubbornness of the Jews propels the gospel outwards to the Gentiles so that the uh, Old Testament um, mandate of Israel to actually be a light to the Gentiles is fulfilled But that does not mean that God has rejected Israel. Um, Come back to Romans 11. Let's pick it up at verse 11. In verse 11, Paul says, Again I ask of Israel, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? Now, I'm talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may say somehow, arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. Now, why does Paul talk up his ministry to the Gentiles so much? Why does he do that? Why does he make much of his ministry to the Gentiles? Why is he always going on and on and talking about it? Well, in verse 14 it's because he, he wants to arouse Jews to envy, but not just so that they'll be envious, rather with a purpose, with a goal, and that goal is that they might actually be saved. That's his goal. How would that work? Well, can, we can imagine some scenarios, can't we? Uh, imagine that you're a first century Jew and you're living in, uh, outside of, um, you're living in Gentile territory, uh, perhaps in Rome or in Philippi, Thessalonica, Galatia, whatever. And you're from, so you're living amongst Gentiles. And you've, you've heard Paul preach the gospel at the synagogue and you rejected it. But over time, you've noticed that your Gentile friends have been spending time with Paul, meeting with Paul, and their lives have been changed for the good. So instead of worshipping the, the idols that you so abhor, you now find that your Gentile friends are not worshipping their idols. Instead of indulging in sexual immorality, which was rife, you find that they're actually repented of their sexual immorality. And you, you find that they're actually worshipping your God and that they, their lives have been transformed so that they now experience a joy and a peace and a hope and a, that you wish that you had. And they're worshipping your God. Do you reckon you might be a touch envious of him? Do you reckon you might think, well, hey, this, this could be worth a second look? <laughs> well, that's Paul's goal. That's, that's what he's on about. That through the disobedience of the Gentiles, of the Jews rather, that the Gentiles will actually hear the gospel and receive mercy, and that that will lead Jews. to be envious and have a second look at the gospel so that they would find that mercy as well. And when that happens, by the way, when Jews become Christians, what a great blessing they are to Gentile Christians. Verse 15, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Here's the concept of the 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 uh, the the first fruits um, being holy and making the rest of the batch holy. The root being holy, so that the, the where it starts. If where it starts is holy, then what grows from that becomes holy as well. Now, what does this mean? Well, think about it this way. Gentiles who become Christians have zero background, or at least very little background, in the things of God. They've got uh, no prior understanding of, of God's dealings with His people... Uh, of the promises to Abraham, of the, um, the covenants that He made with god 's people, of the slavery and the um, exodus, the saving grace of God in bringing his people out of Egypt. Um, they 've got no knowledge of the law and the prophets and the psalms and it 's all new to them. But for a Jew, well it 's the air that they breathe. It's the blood in their veins. It's who they are. And when by God's grace they are convinced that all of this is fulfilled in Jesus, there's a whole stack of things that just fall into place for them. And they become a very great blessing in teaching and discipling Gentiles to understand more of the riches of christ and more of the character of god now who is the most obvious example of this paul paul a man with great background great heritage in the things of god a pharisee but as a pharisee a persecutor of the church and as a christian The one through whom Gentiles come to understand the the character of God, the richness of the gospel, and how it's all fulfilled in Christ Jesus. What a blessing. I I know it's not the same, but I think it is illustrated a little bit by my friend, who, although he was from a Christian background... um, He knew his Bible from when he was a child but had rejected Jesus and and then one day as he was preparing to meet up with another friend uh, who was a Christian guy to debate the Christian guy um, he was reading through Romans and suddenly God opened his eyes the penny dropped he understood justification by faith alone He put his trust in Christ so that all of his knowledge of God was now powerfully deployed for helping others to get to know God better. Very quickly, very quickly, he became a great asset uh, for the Christian church. Paul doesn't want Gentile Christians to be arrogant. Uh, In verse 18, they must not think that they are superior to non-Christian Jews. They mustn't think that. Uh, So in verses 17 through to 24, he says that Gentile Christians are like um, wild olive tree branches that have been grafted into a cultivated olive tree, which is Israel. Um, Let's read it, verses 17 to 24. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. That's the ones that have been cut off. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you are cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Right, you got all that? Is that clear? Well, if it's clear to you... It, you know, Look, I've, I'm obvious that at this point I am talking about something which is not my area or specialty. <laughs> I, I know very little about horticulture, and so I'm happy to be corrected um, afterwards. But here goes anyway. My understanding is this, that by cutting off a branch from an olive tree and then... Binding a branch from a different olive tree into its place, a branch from another olive tree, put it where the other one was and then tie it all up, bind it to the tree that the juices, the saps and whatever um, start to flow between the new branch and the tree and somehow it just actually becomes a part of the tree. And by doing that you can change the olives which the tree produces. Is that right? We got that right? Ted, get the thumbs up. Yeah, got thumbs up from Ted. Now, some people claim that Paul was obviously also speaking outside of his field and that he got this wrong. Um, Because it's more natural to graft a branch from a cultivated tree. ...into a wild tree so that the wild tree will then start to produce better olives. That's what you would normally do. Whereas Paul's kind of talking about the opposite. But you see, the thing is that they, they miss his point. Uh, the point is this, in verse 24, that it is not natural for us as Gentiles to be grafted into God's kingdom... That's what Paul's saying. It's it's doing that which is not natural. You wouldn't normally do it. So therefore, don't be arrogant. Because if God did not spare the natural branches because of unbelief, then why would you think that He would spare you if you become arrogant and hard-hearted towards God? Friends... Spiritual arrogance has got no place in the lives of those who have been saved by mercy. Mercy and arrogance? No, mercy leads to thankfulness, not to arrogance. But more than that, in verse 24, if God has grafted us wild branches into a cultivated tree, then how much more readily would he be prepared to graft back in again the cultivated branches into the cultivated tree? See, has God rejected Israel? No way. Not a chance. God is working according to plan. Verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers... So that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Now, there are various ways in which godly and knowledgeable Christians interpret these uh, verses, uh, different interpretations of them. And particularly what what Paul means when he speaks about all Israel will be saved in verse 26. So let me just outline a couple of those um, possibilities and You'll discover which one I lean towards. Uh, one view is this and that is that um, at, at the point in history when all of the elect Gentiles have become Christians, at that point there will be a mass turning to Christ of all Israel alive at that time. That's one view. However, as we've looked through the Scriptures, it's, it's only ever been the elect within, within Israel um, who were saved, the elect within the nation. Uh, we've, we've seen that in, in, from 1 Kings, at, uh, in the time of Elijah, that there was the physical nation, but there's been an elect within the nation. And we've seen that throughout Romans as well. For example in chapter 9 verse 6 which reads uh, it's not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So the scriptures teach that uh, there is a uh, within the nation of Israel there is in fact the true Israel. (laughs) The ones who are descendants of Abraham by faith. And That kind of leads to the the view to which I tend to lean. And that is that all Israel, uh, as Paul mentions here, refers to all the elect of Israel um, throughout the ages, throughout history. That is, God hardens the hearts of Jews so that the full number of elect Gentiles hear the gospel and are saved and through that, through the, the envy that um, is aroused, that Paul has spoken of, that all of the true Israel within Israel also believe. And I think that's the point that Paul's been making throughout Romans 11. That there is a remnant. That even though they are enemies of the christians um in their opposition to the gospel because of the patriarchs because of god's promises to abraham there will always be a true israel within israel and it's as all of the gentiles are gathered in as has been happening for the last two thousand years so too are jews coming the true israel are coming to faith in the lord jesus christ Which, and as the Gentiles become Christians, uh, it take, causes Jews to take a second look. And when they believe, they become that great blessing to Gentiles, as I've spoken about earlier. But you know what? So there's a couple of the main views. But irrespective of the view that we take on this... Uh, In one sense, in a practical sense, in terms of our daily Christian living, it doesn't make a big difference because we should always be longing for the salvation of Jews. We should always be longing for the salvation of every person, no matter who they are. And it is right and appropriate for us to be praying for those who, although deeply rooted in the Scriptures, do not yet know Christ so that they will be a blessing to others. Now, Christians in Rome, they wondered why so few Jews had accepted Christ. They wondered why the Jews were persecuting Christians. And some amongst the Gentile Christians, they were tempted to arrogance because of that. Uh, The Jewish Christians may have even wondered if they'd made the right choice. But it was all according to God's plan. And so in verse 33, as Paul wraps up this whole section of Romans, Paul just breaks out into a hymn of praise. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, says Paul. I mean, who would have thought? Who would have thought that God would use stubborn, hardened human hearts... To actually cause the saving message of the gospel to spread out and to change the lives of people throughout the world who would think that in the difficulties and the calamities of life things which we find very difficult to understand where God is in those contexts that God is actually using Difficulties and hardness of heart to cause his gospel to spread. I understand that in Germany, that um, there are Christian churches that are flourishing. Not because of Germans, but because of Syrians. Who in the calamities, in, in that dreadful situation in their nation, have been caused to flee and are actually breathing new life into our churches in Germany um, as Christians are fleeing for the sake of their lives from that land. And when you think about it, it's just like the, the rejection of God's own son, Jesus, uh, who God allowed to be rejected, God allowed for him to die on the cross, and that through that, we actually have the payment for our sins has been made so that we can actually have a relationship with God through his blood shed for us which is what we will remember in a few moments as we share together in the Lord's Supper for from him says Paul and through him and for him are all things and so to him be the glory forever Amen.